This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from This Week in Blackness, All Miss J. Sammy, Citizen Radio, Mumia Abu Jamal, The Tom Hartman Program, Black Agenda Report, All In with Chris Hayes, The Young Turks, and Dr. Trisha Rose. And good news for white people, by the end of this episode, you should learn to not feel guilty about racism anymore. Congratulations. So, in a BBC... Uh, interview, Oprah Winfrey was talking about racism and President Obama. So she was saying that the, um, the president is disrespected because of his race. And the host, the BBC host was like, well, I mean, that's crazy. And then Rush Limbaugh got wind of it and said, well, Oprah, my, my, my retort to you is. Hold on. I, I, if you're doing this, let's, let's, let's just, let's figure out what was said and why it was said and then I'll get stuff. All right. Here we go. So bring it back to the themes of the movie. Do you think there's, has it ever crossed your mind that some of the treatment of Obama, uh, and the challenges he's faced and some of the reporting he's received is because He's an African-American, and if he wasn't an African-American, if he was a white guy, those wouldn't have happened. He wouldn't have been treated in quite the same way. He wouldn't have to deal with quite the same confrontations. Has it ever crossed my mind? It's crossed my mind probably as many times as it's crossed your mind. Probably it's crossed my mind more times than it's crossed your mind. Just the level of disrespect. When the senator yelled out, you're a liar. Remember that? Um, yeah, I think that there's a level of disrespect for the office that occurs and that occurs in some cases and maybe even many cases because he's African-American. What? Why would Oprah just make up such random stories? I don't know. I mean, racism is over, so I don't know where this is coming from. She just makes up things that Oprah check. How come, yeah, someone, just... how come, such, how come the, a black person so rich? Not understand that racism is over. Of all people, Oprah should get it. BBC. Oh my God! A couple days ago, on Wednesday in the UK, the arts editor Will Gompertz was interviewing media mogul the Oprah, and the arts editor Will Gompertz said, "Has it ever crossed your mind that some of the treatment of Obama and the challenges that he faced?" And the reporting he's received is because he's an African-American. And if it wasn't an African-American, if he was a white guy, he wouldn't have had to go through any of this. Just a level of disrespect when the senator yelled out, you're a liar. Remember that? Yeah, I think that there's a level of disrespect for the office that occurs. And that occurs in some cases and maybe even many cases because he's African-American. There's no question about that. And it's the kind of thing that nobody ever says, but everybody's thinking it. Then how the hell did you become who you are? Who? Why hasn't anybody in your audience, Oprah, ever said, you lie? Because you have. It wasn't a senator, Oprah. It was a congressman by the name of Joe Wilson. And he was right. Obama was lying. My God, Oprah. You know, this is the, these people, I gotta be really careful. Cause oh, whoa, 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 whoa. These people, oh wait, hold on, hold on, I'm screwing up. Oprah is a goddess to a lot of people, but my goodness, folks. Well, I don't know, but I, these people are not nearly as smart as they think they are, and they don't know nearly what they think they know. I'm sorry, uh, I'm having a, 
irony, a heart attack. Oh, God. <laughs> I can't. Someone get me nitroglycerin or something. We might have to shut down the show. Call 911. I'm sorry. Did Rush Limbaugh just explain to us about how, how these people are as smart as they think they are? As he is, is, is I'm tasting pennies. What's happening? These people. These people. I got to be really careful because, you know, Oprah is a goddess to a lot of people. But my goodness, folks. Well, I don't know. But these people are not nearly as smart as they think they are. And they don't know nearly what they think they know. Didn't you explain to everyone how Beyonce was telling uh, 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 telling women to bow down to their men after she put out the song Bow Down? But he knows that. Like, uh, didn't he, didn't you explain to everyone that, uh, the Dark Knight Rises was actually propaganda to, uh, to poison the American mind against, uh, Mitt Romney because of the character known as Bane? Bane! He knows that though! Come on, guys! Yet, the rest of us aren't as smart as we think we are. Nope. Yeah. No. Nope. I don't, the, I, it's, I, like when he said that, I almost passed out from a blow dart of irony. Like the irony blow dart is real. Where you're just like, I, I can't, I can't, I can't, I. Can't. What's really funny is, and and this isn't a joke. This is, and this isn't me being ha- thrown in some hyperbole. It was, it's a mirror of the of explanations about black folks during slavery and thereafter. It was like we can't, we can't let these people read because they could actually do some stuff, but also they're real stupid and can't do anything. I don't understand. You so you can't really have both that, can you? I don't understand. I don't understand. I can understand. I don't understand. Racism. Monica Brooks, explain why this is happening. Thank you. <laughs> Monica Brooks just walked in the room. She's on hand. Um, like, I, 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 assume, I assume she's, uh, she's practicing her uh, Ninja 101. Uh, cause I just looked up and it was Monica Brooks standing in front of me. Um, <laughs> I don't understand what he's saying and why he, now I know when, even his, st- does his, st- I couldn't work for him because well, uh, he's just—he's okay, powerfully stupid. They are—they are embarrassingly ignorant. I, mean, I don't know what's happening. It's like he's talking about himself. Is this meta? Is he actually listening? Is he actually talking about himself to his audience and getting his audience to agree and like, haha, I'm talking about me? This—it wasn't a senator; it was a congressman. Oh no, that's well, obviously you make that mistake. Then everything you said about racism is obviously just lies. And it's not because he was black. It's not because he was black. All the disrespect, the uh, asking for his papers, uh, go back to Kenya. I want my country back. Uh, I, 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 Mitt Romney saying, uh, like, no one asked me where I was born. They I was born right here. Yeah, anything like that. None of that. None of that. The fact that the, the, the number one question during the 2008 election was, kids in America are waiting for a black guy. But no one cares about that. It has nothing to do with it being black. I don't it's because he was lying, Oprah. He's lying now. He just told the biggest presidential whopper in history. What? President Obama told the biggest presidential whopper in history? Are you talking? You can't be talking about uh, the, the individual mandate. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, about the thing about uh, your uh, health care. You can keep it. You can't be talking about that. And he's trying to cover his rear end for it with telling other lies. But Oprah, if black people in this country are so mistreated and so disrespected, how in the name of Sam Hill did you happen? 
motherfucker. Here's why. Here's, oh, here's how. Here's oh, how it happened. You cannot judge the entire society and entire plight and oppression of a people based on the three people that you guys let out. You got Obama, you got, Obama, you got Jay-Z, you got Oprah. Shut up. Also, also, by the way, just because Oprah is a billionaires, I like that idea, billionaires, um, doesn't mean that she didn't encounter racism that whole way. You can you can be really really rich and really really treated shittily just because you were able to somehow get around that and be able to get stack paper. There were rich people in the eighteen rich black folks in the eighteen hundreds. Yeah, they were, and then they came and burned their cities to the ground. We limped through a life of misery during slavery and again during the Jim Crow era when we could not freely move about in this country. While we were no longer enslaved, this Jim Crow system did affect the way we live our lives on a daily basis. Just about everything was segregated in those days. If you went to the grocery store and touched a vegetable or a piece of fruit, you had to buy it because whites would not allow African Americans to pick over those items before buying them. In parts of this country, we were not allowed to try on clothes or even use public restrooms for about a hundred years after slavery. Can you imagine what it must have been like to be downtown and not be able to relieve yourself in a restroom? If you were going downtown for a few hours, you made sure that you did not eat too much during the day because you knew that you had nowhere to go to use the restroom. The restrooms were for whites only. This is the bus wreck, you see. In those days, if a black man passed a white person on the sidewalk, you stepped off and took your hat off until they passed. If you did not, you could literally end up starting a chain of events that could get you lynched. That is what happened in Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1921. A young brother who was a shoeshine boy accidentally bumped into a white girl. She told a white fellow that he had hit her and the brother was arrested on the spot. It was feared that whites might take him out of jail and lynch him. In the early 1920s, it wasn't unusual for the policeman or sheriff to put his hooded sheet over his uniform and participate in the terrorist lynching. It was their bus wreck, you see. Some elder brothers from the area of Tulsa known as the Black Wall Street District came to the young man's rescue. Black Wall Street reflected an era when blacks had more bling, so to speak, than many white Tulsans. These brothers and sisters had their own banks, stores, shops, doctors, lawyers, and just about everything. They were thriving Africans in America. Some of these black elders heard what had happened to the young brother and took him out of jail before he was lynched. They took him back to the black side of town and placed him under protective custody. When the word spread, white Tulsa grew more and more embittered, and a few rednecks went to Black Wall Street and demanded that the elders release the young man. The black elders refused to turn him over, and they said that they would only give him over to federal authorities. This angered whites even more as they returned to their section of town only to later storm the black community with guns blazing. They ran through the streets shooting men, women, and children in their tracks. Feeble old black women were shot in the heads as these savages blew the locks off their doors and shot everyone and everything in the house. Crop-dusting pilots flew their airplanes over the neighborhood, dropping firebombs on innocent and helpless women and children in the street. 
except for September 11, 2001, it was the only other time that airplanes were used as weapons of choice to kill men, women, and even children in the streets of America. When it was all said and done, Black Wall Street was a bombed-out shell of what once stood as the pride and joy of African Americans across this country. There were mass graves filled with thousands of African Americans. We are talking about the continued effect of the bus wreck, my brothers and sisters. I heard a story about a time when all our stock had some value. Now money gone, things wrong, it's bad, now what have you? I wouldn't mind trying to start a little cooperative economics. Share, share like, make it right, no one can stop it. Build like we trying to find the art, come out the dark. Make it so our kids won't be scared to play in the park. I mean, my lungs tired trying to spit these facts in the right way. Doing 180, going from bad to good, and night to day on Black Wall Street. I'm thinking of Black Wall Street. A black female professor at Minneapolis Community and Technical College oh, this is badness. was formally reprimanded by school officials after three of her white male students were upset by a lesson she taught on structural racism. Uh, Shannon Gibney says that the students reacted in a hostile manner to the lesson in her introduction to mass communications class, with one of them asking her, why do we have to talk about this in every class? Why do we have to talk about this? His whole demeanor was very defensive. He was taking it personally. I tried to explain, of course, in a reasonable manner, as reasonable as I could, given the fact that I was being interrupted and put on the spot in the middle of class, that this is unfortunately the context of 21st century America, she explained in an interview with City College News. Gibney says that after this initial comment, another white male student said, yeah, I don't get this either. It's like people are trying to say that white men are always the villains, the bad guys. Why do we have to say this? These students continued to argue and disrupt the lesson until Gibney told them that if they were troubled by her handling of the subject, they could file an official complaint with the student's legal affairs department. The students then filed a complaint, and Gibney was formally reprimanded by the school's vice president of academic affairs for creating, quote, a hostile learning environment Mm -hmm. for trying to educate her students about the existence and operations of structural racism. Now, just imagine being in a college class... And your professor being like, today we're going to talk about slavery. And a white guy being like, eh, not eh, again this. I'd rather not. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's talk about, uh, let's talk about like, like Macklemore. Also, you know, in her defense, because I was a mass communications major before I was like, this is destroying my soul and I mm-hmm. changed my major. It is important to talk about race in mass communications because if you see it through a racial lens, you you see how, you know, um, social handling of race is really manipulated by our mass communications. Yeah, I mean, these white kids just sound fucking racist, but just to... uh, Yeah, and it's also like, who's creating the hostile environment in that situation? You know, the person who's just like... Teaching a lesson, teaching facts, doing her job, or the person who's like, like interrupting constantly, you know? Yeah, exactly. Well, and 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 this is, you know, a lot of times racist white dudes don't think they're racist. Like to them, not to these these guys sound horrible, but to a lot of white guys, they think you know because I don't use the n word, right? I don't own slaves. That I'm not racist, and so they just want to forget about it. Whether it's because of guilt, whether it's 
because of racism, whether it's just because we live in a structurally racist yeah, country. Yeah, and it's also that they've never been asked to empathize with anyone. Right. That everybody is expected to conform to their view of the that world. That you can just, like, bump into someone at an amusement park. And this is maybe the first time they've ever had a, a woman of color as their teacher, as their superior, saying, you have to be quiet and listen to me. Yeah. And, no, just completely rejected it to the point where they filed a complaint with the... Like, you have to go out of your way to do that. Yeah. Just suck it up and like be like... Like, trying to hurt this black woman. To punish her. Yeah. Right? Because she told you your view of the world isn't complete or fully accurate, and she's just asking you to be quiet for a little bit and empathize and listen. One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen, so if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show, after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restrictions, so if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content including extra voicemails, behind-the-scenes stories, and more of my personal musings. Thanks so much for your support. Every year, Black History Month is celebrated from coast to coast. Great black names are recalled, their exploits praised, and February, the shortest month, staggers to an end. But what shall we say today? A month may come and go, but for millions of young black people, they'll know less and less year by year. That's because they have no idea about their history. For who will teach them? School teachers? DJs? Preachers? Rappers? Barbers? Parents? These questions aren't strictly rhetorical. For the answers to all of them are no. About a year ago, a man came up to me telling me of a discussion he had with a younger man. The younger had a question for the older. Was Martin Luther King a rapper? Think about that. Was Martin Luther King a rapper? As my mother would say, mm, mm, mm. Generations ago, leaders like the great Du Bois, Paul Robeson, Malcolm X, Dr. Ben, or Yusef Ben Jokanin, Dr. John Hedrick Clark, these learned men were heroes of the black world. It's not like that now. For the waters of our culture, our music, has been polluted by the greed of the corporations and their interest to bring harm to black life. Today, ignorance is bliss. History? Wane into that. Woe to those who forget their history, for they know not from whence they came. From imprisoned nation, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. You better check on where you come from. Only where you go, see where you go in young dumb. Young nigga, know your history, dog. Know your history, dog. Know your history, dog. Cause without us, you ain't got nothing. Oh, yeah, you better see the light. Too many niggas out here on the Hold your head up a light. Young nigga, know your history, dog. Hold your head up a light. Hold your head up a light.
your family tree Get up on it, don't let it ever be a mystery Not knowing the true story could be a misery How you ever gonna know yourself without the history John in uh, Kai... How do you say your city name there in California, John? Cayucos. Cayucos, okay, great. What's Cayucos, up? yeah. Um, this is, my, my wife and I own a business um, in the closest, biggest town here, San Luis Obispo, mm-hmm. central coast of California, and I had a very similar experience. Um, I had decided to, um, I had to make a delivery for our business, and <clears throat> it was early in the morning, and um, I pulled up to the business, the, the employees um, were not there yet, and normally I, I would leave the package out in front of the business. Now, this business just happens to be across the parking lot from a homeless shelter, which um, our business that we own has been very um, good at, at donating um, food mm-hmm. to. Um, but I, I pulled up, and there was a black guy, and I'm a 52-year-old 50, white guy from Los Angeles, and I've been, I've been beat up by the best of them down there, gang mm-hmm. members back in the, in the 70s. And um, my dad kind of took a racist view on things. I never did. I never looked at it as, a, as the black community that was beating me up. I looked at it as that person that mm-hmm. was doing that. And um, so I didn't hate the black population. I just hated those people, you know, that did that to me. And so this is a, mainly a, a pretty white town here. And... Um, so, but there's homeless people, of course. It's nice weather and stuff. They're here all the time. And um, there was a black guy standing out in front on a bicycle smoking a cigarette, and he appeared that he had just come from the homeless shelter. And normally I would have left the package of food out in front of this business. And normally I would leave my car running while I walked across the little walkway to get to the business. Well, I walked up and I said, okay, I don't know what this guy's up to no one's around i shut my car off left the package in the car and looked around to make sure that there was no employee there and i decided to leave and uh normally i would have left it well i got home and i discussed this with my wife because i felt like i did it because he was black Mm. and if that was a white guy i may not have done it and um the next day, he was out there again, and I left the car running this time, and I said good morning to him, and he asked me, you know, how I was doing and all that kind of stuff, and I said, fine, and I said, so they're not open yet, huh? And I started a conversation with him. He was very intelligent. He was very nice, and um, I said, you know what? Screw this. I'm leaving the package. If he takes it, then he needs it. He didn't take it. As a matter of fact, he guarded it <laughs> until the employees came and opened the store. Yeah. And what it did to me, it uh, still to this day, and this happened maybe two months ago. I think about this almost daily because I, you know, I'm, I'm a total liberal, and like I said, I, I never thought of the black community as against me or against the whites, there's good white people, there's bad white people, there's good black people, there's bad black people. We're just people 
trying to live together. Mm-hmm. And um, and yet we've it, all it got these, me. these these acculturated instincts. John, a, a, a marvelous story. Thank you for sharing that with us. And, and yeah, uh, I, I hope it doesn't happen again. I, I wish that I could could get this out of me. Don't forget what you learned. All you give is returned. And if life seems absurd, what you need is some laughter and a season to sleep and a place to get clean. Maybe Los Angeles, somewhere no one's expecting. On a detox walk through a Glendale park, over sidewalk chalks in the road and red start over. So I muffle my scream on an Oxnard beach full of fever dreams that scare you sober into saltless dinners. When Dr. Martin Luther King died at the age of 39, he was quite clear about who and what was at the root of human suffering. He believed that racism, militarism, and extreme materialism were the giant triplets of interrelated evil that had to be overcome if society was to be transformed. Dr. King said the United States was host to all three resident evils, and that America reigned as the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today. Forty-six years later, the United States clearly leads the world in all three of Dr. King's categories of evil, and we can prove it by the numbers. It's true that racism is hard to measure, but the effects of racism can be quantified. If a racist government is defined as one that consistently uses its powers in ways that harm a particular racial group, then the U.S. is indisputably the most racist major state in the world. The U.S. prison population is by far the largest on the planet in sheer numbers and in the proportion of Americans locked up. No other country comes close, which makes the United States the superpower of mass incarceration. America's police and prison custodial forces dwarf the militaries of most countries, which tells us that militarism is now so deeply embedded in U.S. domestic structures that you can't tell where the military ends and the police begin. Nearly half of U.S. prisoners are African-American, although blacks are only one-eighth of the total U.S. population. Since Americans make up fully one-quarter of the world's prison inmates, that means one out of every eight prisoners on the planet is an African-American. This could only occur in a thoroughly racist state, whose institutions work overtime to produce the biggest and most racially unbalanced incarceration numbers on Earth. Clearly, America has racism, triple evil number one, covered. Number two is militarism. The U.S. military budget is almost as large as the military spending of all the world's other nations combined. Together, the U.S. and its NATO allies account for more than 70% of global weapons spending. At last count, the U.S. spent six times more on war than China and 11 times more than Russia. In fact, if you count up the U.S. and all of its allies, they are probably responsible for about 90% of all monies spent on war.
Therefore, today, 46 years after Dr. King's death, the United States is not just the greatest purveyor of violence in the world. It is right at the center of just about all of the violence in the world today. Which is why a recent international poll shows that the people of the world think the U.S. is the most significant threat to peace. Finally, the third of the triple evils, extreme materialism. By that, Dr. King meant great disparities in wealth and income. According to the Swiss Global Wealth Data Book, wealth is so unevenly distributed in the United States, it no longer resembles a first world country at all. Of all the rich nations, the U.S. is dead last in terms of material equality. So, by Dr. Martin Luther King's measurements, America is in bad shape, more bedeviled by the triple evils than back in his day. In fact, things are much, much worse, because it's the silence that kills you. For Black Agenda Radio, I'm Glenn Ford. Silence must be As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. Welcome to Hannity. Tonight, the president is blaming his low approval rating in opposition to his radical agenda on the color of his skin. The latest right-wing racial freakout centers on a quote in a new, very long article in The New Yorker in which editor David Remnick got to spend a few days traveling with President Obama. At one point, in a wide-ranging set of interviews and discussions, the topic turned to race, with Remnick writing that opposition to the president, quote, comes largely from older whites who feel threatened, underemployed, overlooked, and disdained in a globalized economy in an increasingly diverse country. The president then said the following to David Remnick, there's no doubt there are some folks who just really dislike me because they don't like the idea of a black president. Now, I have lost count, truly, of the number of moments of nasty and or weird right-wing racialized panics in the Obama era. But this little episode just may be the most perfect, succinct microcosm of our entire politics for the first five years of the first black president. Because here is the other part of the Obama quote about the effect of race. Quote, now, the flip side of it is there are some black folks and maybe some white folks who really like me and give me the benefit of the doubt precisely because I'm a black president. So, the president says, there are some people who don't like me because they don't like the idea of a black president, which is undoubtedly true. There are 300 million people in America. Some of them are just straight up racist, and some of them just don't like having a black president. But then, Barack Obama makes sure to also say that on the other hand, his race helps him with some subset of voters who, quote, give me the benefit of the doubt precisely because I'm a black president. That's probably true as well, though I'd argue in a far, far less consequential way. 
But what the entire quote amounts to is treating the president's status as the first black president as basically a small, trivial concern that helps with some voters and hurts with others, and it all comes out in the wash. It's like the way a southern politician might answer a question about his accent. No big deal, not much to see here. That's what the president said. And yet, somehow, that utterly banal, even-handed treatment of the single most explosive issue in American life gets turned into this. Provocative comments from President Obama. Instead of taking responsibility for his failures, the president blames everybody else. And this week, he's now taken this to an all-time new low. How do you attribute falling poll numbers while you are president to your race? Anything that he does wrong that Republicans call him on and say he's not doing a good job, the president says they must not like me because of my race. I think it's pure baloney. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the entire Obama presidency in a nutshell. Here is someone who announced himself to the nation in 2004 with a message all about inclusion, cooperation, transcending the nasty divides of American partisan life. Here's someone whose signature rhetorical approach in speech after speech after speech is to reject anything remotely polarizing, to never show even the slightest hint of anger, to be a model for calm and equanimity, and to couch nearly every single argument he makes in public life as a moderate path in between dueling extremes. This is someone who goes out of his way to argue the other side so much he sometimes descends into self-parody, as when he gave a speech talking about the necessity and importance of war at the Nobel Peace Prize ceremony. And that man, who has done everything within his considerable communicative power to ratchet down the explosive pressure of American political and racial discourse, has been met with this kind of reception from the right-wing media industrial complex. The president has demonstrated he's got a default mechanism to him that breaks down the side of race on, on the side of uh, it, it favors the black person. President Obama has offered to, to pay out of his own pocket for the Museum of, of Muslim Culture. This president, I think, has exposed himself as a guy over and over and over again who has a deep-seated hatred for white people or the white culture. And the lesson that Barack Obama has learned that truly everyone in America who's watching has learned, is an old one. You cannot dissipate conflict through a sheer act of will, no matter how rare and historic a political talent you are. History has a say. The other side has a say. The roiling, simmering id of American political consciousness will not quiet just because you speak in a low tone. Blue states and red states, liberal media and conservative media, these may be indeed constructs of pundits that obscure the real human connections and affinities us citizens have for each other, the right-wing uncle we love, the radical lesbian cousin we adore. But it is also equally true that we are fighting with each other in this country because we really do disagree about what our past means and what our future should be. And there's nothing wrong with recognizing that and joining the battle. Because if there's one thing we've seen in the Obama era, it's that even if you're not interested in fighting, the fight is interested in you. A GOP strategist was recently speaking to Don Lemon on CNN, and she was making the argument that 
You know, Obama seems to play the race card a little too much, and it's a little frustrating. Now, keep in mind that this happened um, on Monday, MLK Day, and uh, her arguments seem a little questionable. Alice, <laughs> is the president playing the race card, as Palin suggests, or he's just stating the obvious? Well, two more words on this. Stop it. Of course he's playing the race card. And, and the problem we have here is, especially on uh, MLK Day of all days, is look how far we've come. We have not only elected the first African-American president, we've re-elected him. And, and the fact of the matter is, he's not, people don't dislike him because he is a black president. That has nothing to do with it. It's because he's a blind president. It's not about the pigment of his skin. It's about his policies, his job-killing policies. And the numbers that he really needs to be concerned with is the fact that 53% of Americans don't trust him. Okay, Obama has never played the race card. Obama has never <laughs> once said, my opponents dislike me or uh, conservative Republicans dislike me because I'm black. That has never come out of his mouth. Uh, Sarah Palin seems to, for some reason, think that he's said that in the past or even implied it in the past. Um, this this strategist, strategist, Alice Stewart, seems to think it. But I think the most frustrating part about it is she refuses to acknowledge that, yes, there is a population of people out there that dislike Obama because he's a biracial president. Right. It's actually crazy to say that because he was voted for once and then reelected that there's no racism. That makes no sense. First off, we know that only about 40% of people vote in the first place. So you got 60% of people that could be racist just then and there. And of course, there's some percentage of people that won't vote for him because he's black. That, that doesn't mean you can't have legitimate policy. We complain about him all the time. You know, you can have legitimate policy issues with the guy. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean it's based in race. So that's, she wants it to be in some perfect world where that is only it, but that's just not the world we live in. Well, they will never, ever admit that. I think that that's something that they realize, that the Republicans and conservatives realize this is constantly lobbed upon them and I think that there is justification for for obviously that there is still racism and there are segments of the population that will vote against him because he's black but he also said there are some segments of the black population that will vote for him because he's black so right. she wouldn't even <laughs> acknowledge that part you know I think that for for Obama just being black is playing the race card for these people absolutely so let's uh, take a look at the next video she uh, continues and Mark Lamont Hill actually uh, rebuts some of what she says and I love it. Take a look. Don't you think it would be disingenuous to, to think that all people who dislike the president dislike him because of his policies? I know black people who didn't like George Bush because he was white. That's, that's the truth. You don't think there are white people who don't like the president because he's black? I think the, the concerns people have and the reason people don't like President Obama is because of his policies. Nothing to do with the... Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Alice, go, go, go ahead, go ahead, but, but that wasn't the question. Alice, that wasn't the question. The question was, do you think there are any, not do you think that there are a, a majority? Because the point here is, first of all, 39% of white people voted for Obama. Most white people did not vote for Barack Obama. And I have no doubt that some of them did it on racial grounds. But let's be clear. President Obama also said that there are some black people who only support him or who right. give him the benefit of the doubt because he is black so it's not as if obama came out and said white people are picking on me he's saying that some people black people and white people vote along racial lines and support along racial lines but one more thing here and that is this whole race card thing just because you mention race doesn't mean you're playing the race card somehow the race card has become this thing to stop black people from talking about race you no, can acknowledge well, racism white supremacy no. without playing a race card I love what he says there, because yeah. it's absolutely true. And look, if right now everyone is making an argument based on absolutely no evidence, right? But we have a little bit of a mashup, okay? Let's see what some white people, <laughs> some public figures have had to say about Obama in the past. When you take a look at Colin Powell, you have to wonder whether that's an endorsement based on issues or whether he's got a slightly different reason for preferring uh, President Obama.
you know, obviously Obama's going to come out in this case much more forcefully, and he's going to throw a lot of spears. Barack Obama is a drug dealer of welfare. Obama is the best food stamp president in American history. Pick this president up, pat him on the head, and say, son, 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 Mr. President, you were never ready to be president. Now go home work for somebody. I think uh, when you have somebody of your own race that you're proud of being president of the United States, I applaud Colin for standing with him. Permanent dependency, in my judgment, of all these folks on the federal, somehow getting benefits, benefits, benefits. I'm prepared, if the NAACP invites me, I'll go to their convention and talk about why the African-American community should demand paychecks and not be satisfied with food stamps. My party unfortunately is the bastion of those people not all of them but most of them who are still basing their decisions on race let me just be candid my party is full of racist and the real reason a considerable portion of my party wants president obama out of the white house has nothing to do with the content of his character nothing to do with his competence as commander-in-chief and president and everything to do with the color of his skin and that's despicable and racial intolerance, the military service, even the police, city hall at his office, straight to the hall of justice, no money they're lending, the bank money redlining, if somehow you get money, landlord say no vacancy, there is no wisdom, in Zionism, and tribalism. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, generation justice. So anyone who's ever watched a Sunday morning news show or two has probably noticed the percentage of older, rich, white men sitting on both sides of the interview desks. If you took a stab at that exact percentage, you wouldn't be far off by guessing right around the 100% mark. And Sundays are not the aberration. According to Race Forward, the organization that publishes color lines, people of color sit at our nation's media desks and behind our microphones in percentages small enough to embarrass a country that isn't minority-majority. Less than a quarter of our on-camera personalities, less than 13% of our newspaper writers, and less than 12% of our radio broadcasters are journalists of color. It's little wonder that our media professionals continue to have a fascination with the first black president in a way that's easily manipulated by racist pundits and candidates wielding dog whistle phrases like food stamp president while calling still for his birth certificate. Enter Generation Justice, an organization in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Their mission is to, quote, inspire youth to become media makers committed to social transformation, unquote. Their fellowship and youth development programs train teens to apply a social justice perspective to written and broadcast journalism by employing the core values of youth leadership and empowerment, community, action, equity, multiculturalism, and love teens learn about democracy and civic engagement. Generation Justice has a weekly radio show which streams online at generationjustice.org, a full calendar of community events in the Albuquerque area, blogs and video interviews with people like Jeff Cohen, the founder of Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, and hip-hop artist and activist Brother Ali, all of which is produced by middle and high school students. 
83% of Generation Justice alumni who pursue careers in media are youth of color. Through training, experience, and mentorship, they are given the edge required to compete in an industry lagging behind in equality and opportunity. These young people could change the literal face of media and bring about a truly fair and balanced approach. Imagine if the people reporting the news had the life experience to approach issues and events in a real and deeply informed way. We would all be better off for it. You can support Generation Justice just by following them on Facebook and Twitter, tuning into their radio show, and sharing their videos, all of which can be found at generationjustice.org, and of course, in today's segment notes. They also have a Donate Now button and ways to engage with and thank the organizations that maintain their work. Also, never underestimate the power of positive feedback, for anyone, but especially for youth. Leave comments on videos and blogs you enjoy and click the Contact tab to tell them you appreciate their hard work, and maybe their generation won't have to endure the white guys do it by themselves parade that passes for mainstream media today. Come on out from in front of the television. Bust out of your self-imposed media prison. There's a whole big world out there, y'all. And some serious stuff is going down. Civil war intolerance, AIDS obliteration. The usual madness, but not enough frustration about what's troubling Earth's nations. The spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days, and it will not be your saving grace. Why not replace your dreams of gracing life stage with action? I want to begin with my own experiences as a college professor and a speaker for the last 20 years. Um, and, and what I learned most importantly over the last five or ten in this journey. And that has to do with the difference between learning about human suffering, inequality, injustice, and how to absorb the learning about human rights, inequality, and injustice. Now, I focus on race in America. I'm, I work on African-American culture and history very significantly. And I, will, and I teach at Brown, and I've taught at many other universities across the years. And I find that it's a great struggle to get people to deal with the emotional toe of the material. When I was much younger and I started teaching, I thought it'll be just the facts. I'll give out all the facts and social change will happen. How could people look at these facts? How could they look at this information and not leap up off their sofas and just get going? Right? I thought facts would answer it. And I discovered that facts really don't do it all. That we know a lot and we've known a lot and we keep re-knowing a lot. And then sometimes we have to be reminded a lot because we don't want to hear it. Um, and that facts alone don't take care of it. And then I started teaching um, a big, big lecture class um, in California and had a, one of these experiences that was completely dumbfounding uh, where we'd spent all this time dealing with African-American history and culture and someone said, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I don't come from a slave state. I'm not responsible for this. My family wasn't even here. Why are you telling me this? <laughs> that was one of those moments where even though you're indoors, your hair blows back, you know, you're like, am I going to make it? Um, and I thought, wow, she feels really bad. This material has made her feel really, really bad. Even though I don't intend that, and even though my goal is to bring everybody together to work to make change, some things we got to look at. Remember I said what's around us is uncomfortable. And I realized that I needed to think about how we work together. So if there's one thing I want you to do while you're here throughout this amazing event, is realize that one category or another, you're going to find, whether it's race, whether it's gender, whether it's sexuality, whether it's questions of the environment, 
you may find yourself in uncomfortable positions in relationship to the fact of the matter, in relationship to the truth. This is very true about race in America today because we don't, we're, we've, we've been led to believe that if we ignore it, it'll go away. That race is the problem as opposed to racism. That if we pretend we're, ever, we're, we're all the same and we're, being colorblind is the solution, that somehow white power, white supremacy, white whatever we want to call it, white privilege will somehow disappear from the face of the earth if we stop seeing color. This is absurd, right? I mean, it seems to me absurd. What we have to do is transform the meaning of our various identities, right? So we have to see who we are, see who we're connected to, but acknowledge how we are positioned in society. It wouldn't make any sense for people to say, oh, well, you know, I'm heterosexual and that has nothing to do with uh, anti-gay activism. It's just not connected. My privilege is not connected to your suffering. Absurd. But that's what we say when we say colorblindness. We say, I don't see you in all your complexity, which includes your race, because to do that means to acknowledge my privilege. And this is a great crime. This is a great crime. So I have three strategies for staying out of this box, because I think that, you know, it's easy for me to talk to you right now, but you'll find that as you get deeper into certain moments, this is especially true for the high school students who are here, when you start confronting it, the emotional intensity can be overwhelming. And one of the things we retreat to is our individuality, right? We retreat to our individual. I love all people. <laughs> You've heard this before, right? <laughs> I love all people. I, don't, I know it's terrible. This is bad. I'm not responsible for this because what, you know, what could I do, right? Now, we don't have to be the cause to be implicated in the situation, we don't have to be the cause to be implicated in the situation. So the first thing I want you to keep in mind when you get in this moment is that you are, and we all are, myself included, we're individuals and we're members of groups. Okay, repeat after me. We're individuals, individuals. and we're members of groups. And groups is plural because we're all members of many different groups, right? We're not one group of people. We're gendered, we're raced or multi-raced. We have religious groups, we have sexual orientation groups, we have class groups, we have national groups, we have ethnic identity groups, etc. If we're looking at power, we have to remember that when we're in an individual state, we're completely creative and individual. I, I broke the mold, right? There's no other Trisha Rose. I mean, could there possibly be? See? Exactly. Thank you. Let's do that one more time. I'm Trisha Rose. I broke the mold. There couldn't be another one, right? Okay, much better, much better. Yeah, you too. You broke the mold. You're a completely autonomous individual with all your quirks and, and, and tweaks and different ways of being. But you're also members of groups. And what that means is that in my case, there are experiences I've had because I'm female, because I'm from Harlem and from a working class background, because I'm black, that means that I have to grapple with situations that some other people really don't know anything about. Unless they work hard to figure it out. How are they gonna figure it out if they don't know I'm a member of a group? They're not gonna be able to see it. They're gonna basically say, well, you're an individual and we just love you exactly as you are, Trisha Rose, the individual who broke the mold. And I say, yeah, I broke that mold, but I'm part of a much bigger mold that's clearly unbroken. 
And that mold has to do with the way race and class come together. Why, when I was 16 years old and went to a very, very wealthy friend's house, they asked me to use the back entrance. I'm not that old, so it wasn't as long ago as you'd like to say. <laughs> I'm old, but I'm not that old. So the first thing is to really remember that we're individuals and members of groups because otherwise that kind of experience gets minimized. And that leads me to my second point, where we end up saying, hey, you know, that's terrible, Tricia, which many people said to me then. You know, you got asked, that was just one bad doorman, as if he was to blame for the logic that I should have been a maid or a servant just by definition. That's sort of him, but it's not him. It's a structural logic, right? That's the part of, of recognizing we're members of groups. But the second most important thing is that when I shared that story, some people would say to me, you know, oh, he's just a bad example. Most of us are past that. And that means that second one is this moment where we try to minimize painful elements of people's suffering. Oh, so-and-so was really sexist, but you know, there's a lot of great people out here who aren't or whatever, right? That may be true, but that denies the reality. We have to be honest about the pain and suffering that serious structural inequality and oppression causes people all the time. We have to be serious. Because that pain sometimes makes us feel bad and sometimes guilty, depending on the situation, we like to minimize as a way to cover over, not because we're being hostile, but because we're uncomfortable. If we want particularly cross-racial understanding, we have to get outside of our box and pay really close attention to the emotional impact of what suffering is for those who are in poor and minority communities who face ongoing discrimination. It's not an occasional thing. Stop and frisk in New York is a policy phrase for a practice that's been going on for 350 years. Now, you may not remember, but it was only, say, five to six, maybe seven years ago when people were very comfortable saying, I don't think the police particularly target black and brown people in poor communities. I don't, I've never heard of that. I've never seen that. Well, it's because you don't live in predominantly poor black and brown communities and watch. If you did, you'd see it all day, every day. Right? So you have to listen with the assumption that you're an individual, but you're a member of a group. And as a member of a group, you might have privileges that would render you unable to see the experiences that this other group might be having. Then you have to be willing to deal with the pain that that reality causes. That's very difficult, but it's crucial to group change. It's crucial to the connecting for change this kind of event is really about, because you have to connect. That means you have to empathetically attach to other people's suffering. Okay, the third thing that's absolutely crucial, it seems to me, is that we have to anticipate the um, emotional suffering I've talked about and figure out how we're going to handle it and not deny it. That means we have to build in that part. It can't be we work with facts or we work with the imaginary future we're going to create and we don't attend to it. So we have to make space for this, right? Now, we can't be indulgent, but we have to make space for it and we have to be responsible with it. That means we have to sort of see ourselves as agents of our own change, even as we're agents of collective change. So I started this with a story, if you remember, of um, a student in my class who was just very hurt by the fact that certain data 
seemed to implicate people that she felt that she was in a group of, and she didn't want to be implicated. So she just wanted out. I'm from California. I had nothing to do with slavery. It was just, you know, it was California was Mexico at the time. What do you want from me? I mean, it was sort of a crazed moment. But instead, I was stunned, I will confess. I sort of stood there. It wasn't this big, thank the Lord. It was smaller. But it was sort of big enough for me to look around and realize, okay, I had to do something. I couldn't just say, well, hon, you know, that's not how it works. I couldn't give her an intellectual answer because her response was not an intellectual response. So I just, out of the blue, came up with this impromptu pledge that I've kept with me. Luckily, I had fabulous graduate students who, who could write fast and wrote it down because I made it up on the spot and basically tried to use it as a way to encourage her to feel empowered but also responsible and connected. So I'm happy to share it with you. We have time for it. Would you like me to share it with you? Okay, if you, would you like to read it back with me? Because that'll change my pacing. Sure? If you don't, you don't have to, but I would like to invite you. So let me pull this here and then we will be good to go. So if you find yourself in a situation where you're feeling uncomfortable, maybe this will help you. Okay. So when I say my name, you feel, feel free to say my name, but you may want to say your own because this, <laughs> this is about our own responsibility. I, Trisha Rose... am not personally responsible for racism, classism, sexism, homophobia, or any other vast form of group-based discrimination, even though I very likely benefit from it. Therefore, I should not feel guilty. I might feel sadness, empathy, outrage, but guilt won't change anything for the better. And besides, it focuses only on me. I did not choose the body sexual orientation, race or class position, into, in, into the, how I came into this world. What I can choose is how I want to behave. And whether or not I want to meaningfully contribute to creating a just society in light of all I'm learning. Okay, two sentences, close it. I can determine how I want to live in this world and what kind of alliances I want to make. So what I do from this day forward defines who I am and for that I'm responsible
Hi, Jay. This is Aaron from Philly calling in. Uh, just a couple of follow-ups about the conversation about the trans discussion and where the burden of education lies is how I'm going to put it. So there was a segment on the Trans Rights Podcast from Radio Dispatch, and then you had a caller in the last show, uh, Natasha from Los Angeles. Hi, Jay. This is Natasha from L.A. And they both kind of made a point along the lines of, well, you know, we understand why Katie Couric might have asked that question. Your private parts are different now, aren't they? Because... You know, it's a question that a lot of her viewers and listeners might have had. And if Katie asks a question that's on 90% of the viewers' minds, does that make her a bad person? Maybe this is the sad fate currently facing members of the trans communities. As much, as much as it's a pain to feel like a dancing monkey, doing so will bring about greater understanding on the part of the majority of the cis population. I think the issue there is, you know, it's one thing, as Natasha said, where, you know, if someone comes up to her and... You know, sees it. She's. I'm a white woman of primarily Eastern European descent, but that was four generations ago. Still, I apparently have a distinct look that causes people on the street to stop me to ask where I'm from. And on a one-on-one basis, she can make the decision to educate somebody about that and say, "Well, you know, really, I'm from Los Angeles. You know, maybe my great-great-grandmother was from whatever country, but." Yeah, that, that's one thing. The difference when you're on national television, I think you got a little close to this, Jay. You know, Katie Couric, Piers Morgan, they have producers, they have research staff. They could find these things out ahead of time. And if they're concerned about their audience needing to know these things, it's their show. They get to control what the content is. If they wanted to do a Trans 101 before the guests come out and say, okay, you know, these are some questions we figure you might have. Here are some quick answers. And then you don't put it back onto the person you know, who's who's the minority who has to answer these questions all the time to have to do that education once again on national TV. And certainly that way avoids the very personal questions about what's in someone's pants. It's one thing to have someone come up and say, you know, where are you really from? Or I think the better analogy for a trans person be was, oh, well, what's your real name? Uh, implying what was your name before transition. It's quite another thing to have someone come up and say to you, oh, hey, you're trans, what's in your pants? Uh, I wouldn't answer to a person who did that to me in person. I certainly wouldn't do it on national television. That's all I've got for right now. Uh, Thanks for hosting this conversation, and keep up the good work. Hey, Matt in Nagani, Michigan here. Good job bringing attention to uh, gender issues. Uh, I like the fact that you've been focusing on that lately. Two quick notes. One, I think that the fascination of the, the conventional dominant community, uh, cis people, straight people, white people, etc., the fascination with the physical changes in the genitalia of trans people comes from a kind of grotesque fascination with the other, which, with that which is different, and especially because we have so much sexual shame in our culture. That's kind of where where those folks are coming from when they always they want to know you know every every interviewer wants to know oh well what about your junk? It's offensive because it treats trans people as objects of curiosity like freaks in a grotesquerie of old. Number two, uh, I hope that you will give a little more airtime to queer theory, which is just the very brilliant idea of doing what you feel and being who you feel you are and dropping the whole, uh, not necessarily abandoning all labels, because 
we have things in common with certain other people in, in many different ways. And so it's convenient to use uh, a variety of labels in order to kind of feel a part of a community. But queer theory is all about, when it comes down to it, just being who you are and doing what you feel. And as long as you're not hurting anybody, more power to you. So I, I really uh, am more comfortable defining myself as queer than as straight. Even though I've, you know, I've never kissed a guy, I've never had sex with a guy, um, I'm, by most definitions, a pretty conventional straight white dude. But I'm more comfortable with the label queer than I am with the label straight because of um, the political implications uh, of that tradition. So uh, I hope you'll pay a little bit more attention to that in the near future. Thanks. I have one more call that I'm going to get to in just a moment, but first I want to say that although I really appreciate the sentiment behind the comments he was making, uh, you know, Matt, who we just heard from, that I want to issue a real strong note of caution on that. You know, identity politics is not just about how you see yourself. It is also about how society sees you. And so trying to self-identify as queer when self-admittedly not experiencing the world as queer and not having society perceive you as queer is sort of, to put it overly dramatically, a dangerous game you're playing. And since today's episode is all about race, I'll, I'll, make, I'll draw a comparison to race and, and say that, um, you know, even people of color who are in every way absolutely people of color, but if they have sort of dramatically light skin and are perceived by society as white or, or are often misidentified as white, they have a different lived experience than a person of color with very dark skin. And the identity politics uh, between those two types of people referring to this themselves as people of color gets, let's just say, complicated. And it doesn't mean that either is less of a person of color than the other, but they do have different lived experiences. And so the labeling just gets messy and people's opinions about that get really messy really quickly. And so, you know, to try to identify as queer without living, uh, you know, a, a queer experience is just something you probably don't want to do. Uh, <laughs> there's no reason to do that when we already have the word ally, which is there specifically for this purpose. It's a perfectly good word that applies very well to you and to me, and there's no reason to refer to us in any other way. Now, speaking of words being in place to refer to the things that they refer to, uh, that brings us to our final call where I'm going to have a conversation with uh, Robert here. Hey, Jay, this is Jacob from Indianapolis. I'm calling because on the uh, transgender issue, and I'll try to make this brief. I have a lot of trouble dealing with the community, not in terms of voting uh, rights or uh, marriage rights or anything like this. I feel everyone should be treated with equality and have civil rights and everything. But I take issue with things like uh, cisgender because, and I know this is going to offend a lot of listeners, but cisgender is just normal. If you have the reproduction organs of the same gender you consider yourself to be, that's normal. And I know that implies that people who are not are abnormal, and I don't mean to imply that, but I know that's a consequence of saying that. First of all, I have to say on this point that I'm very surprised that Robert has come to the conclusion that he has, given that he seems to be very aware of the consequences of his statement. He doesn't want for trans people to be referred to as abnormal or strange, yet he still kind of wants to, for reasons I, I can't quite grasp. But that being the case, I will explain that cis is a Latin prefix. This is not a new word that we made up uh, for the occasion of political correctness to irritate conservatives. Uh, the, the prefix meaning is 
on the near side of or on this side of, meaning two things on the same side of something. It's a prefix. So if it's cisgender, it means your gender and your gender identity are on the same line. They are in line with each other. The opposite is trans. Definitionally, from Latin, it's just what the words mean. So you can prefer to use the word normal, but it has the downside of alienating people and you are literally being less precise in what you are saying than if you simply call a thing exactly what it is. Second of all, uh, I really find it hard to take the community seriously when it goes from LGBT to LGBTQ and LGBT XYZ. Uh, why do they have to keep adding uh, letters? Like, the movement is already legitimate, and I feel by adding letters, it clouds the uh, message because it seems to be when you started off with uh, LGB, it's talking about your preference and sexual partners. And then when you move on to uh, trans, you're adding in something else. And then when you're adding in gender, queer, and all this other things, I feel that it really dilutes the message for, some, for someone like me. Now, this one is actually a very small question wrapped in a lot of marketing advice. Now, in terms of marketing, Robert may be more correct because marketing is all about the audience you're trying to reach. And in terms of reaching an audience, having a very, like, almost comically long acronym is a turnoff for people, as Robert explained. I certainly wouldn't take it upon myself to tell them that they are wrong for adding whatever letters they care to add, but from a marketing perspective, he may have a point. Now, within that comment, he did have this question. Uh, why do they have to keep adding uh, letters? And if I take this question on its own, I think I can actually give you a pretty good answer. So he also mentioned that, you know, the original group was just about uh, sexual preference, but then they started adding other things like transgender, which sort of muddies the waters. It dilutes the message. But consider what brings all these disparate groups together under one tent is their systematic exclusion from mainstream society. So is it any wonder at all that one of their primary organizing tenets would be inclusion and making sure that anyone who felt that they fell outside the mainstream felt like they had a home in this movement? You say that gender is not binary, but how is it not binary? I mean, you can only be male or female. And maybe I'm just stuck in a binary world. But if you, I mean, obviously everyone has traits that are somewhat male and somewhat female, but almost no one has a 50-50 split. So why can't we just say, well, if you exhibit signs that are 51% female, then you're female or vice versa. So that's really hard for me to deal with. My first question for Robert is, who is we in this statement? He says, you know, why can't we just say that if a person is 51% male or 51% female, then that's the gender they are? Who is we in that? Is, is it a doctor? Is it a judge? Is it the parents of the person? Who is we and why is it more important for we to make a judgment like that than to just let every individual make the judgment for themselves and then self-express however they want? That, that seems so much simpler to me and much less effort just let people do whatever they want and not worry about it. And and then the, the one example I have off the top of my head on this is uh, Molly from Radio Dispatch, who I've heard self-describe multiple times as, you know, like she self-describes as a woman. But what she mostly says is, you know, when I was coming to terms with this, uh, you know, as a kid and I was given the choice between male and female and I recognize like this is what society is. They're men and women, boys and girls. And she said, I don't like those options. I don't, 
I don't want to pick one or the, the other. I, I don't. I don't feel like I fit those. So who is anyone else to say that she's wrong about that? You know, we might as well be talking about getting rid of the color green. You know, it's really just a combination of blue and yellow. So why don't we, hey, it's 51% blue. Just call it blue. Why do we have to complicate things with a whole extra word? It's just blue or yellow. Call it one or the other and move on. We're getting into a parallel conversation with the definition of cis in that it is simply more accurate to call green green than to call it blue just because it's 51% blue. You know, we do not simplify the world by getting rid of words because we think that words are clutter. Words help us define reality. And if that's what reality is, then we might as well have a word for it. And also, uh, personal pronouns are a thing that I don't like to deal with. I mean, why do we have to make up new words for things? Uh, and to be honest, they just sound like complete nonsense and it's hard to take the movement seriously. But one thing I do agree with you with, I do believe that there is a privilege that people who have the sex organs of the gender they are born, there is a privilege to that. And I think that something would be done, just should be done, just like white privilege. I don't want to have, I don't want to sound totally like Archie Bunker, but these are some serious problems I have as someone who considers himself male and was born with male sex parts and who is somewhat liberal. Here are the things that I have trouble with. Anyway, enjoying the show. Thanks. Bye. I don't know if anyone else noticed this, but my guess is that the caller noticed that I referred to him over and over again as Robert in our conversation, even though he self-identified as Jacob at the beginning of his voicemail. And, you know, obviously I have no idea how he actually felt about that, but I wouldn't be surprised if he was a little irritated, you know, just a little. But what's irritating about that? I mean, he self-identified as Jacob and I decided I didn't care and I wanted to identify him as Robert. What's the big deal? I didn't fundamentally change who he was. I didn't turn him into Robert. I just misidentified him. So what's the big deal? But the thing is, he's not Robert. He has no connection with the name Robert, as far as I know. And he, like everyone else, deserves to be identified the way they identify. And so why do we need to break out of the paradigm of the gender binary? Why do we need new pronouns to facilitate the breaking out of the gender binary? Because it turns out the world is more complicated than we used to think it was, and our language is currently insufficient to meet that demand. Language serves the needs of society. Society does not conform to the restrictions of language. Everyone deserves to identify the way they feel comfortable, and disallowing that because of artificial limitations of language is just that. It's artificial. So what we're experiencing right now is what I described a few episodes ago as the scientific term of shifting baseline syndrome. So now, because it's new to us, terms like cisgender or new pronouns or the use of they in the singular, something like that, sound strange to us. They sound new, but 50 years from now, they won't. Just like 50 years ago, it might have been strange to self-identify as straight because why would we identify as straight? Let's just identify as normal and not queer or whatever they would have said with like hate in their voice at the time. We're just in a, in a shift and I'm sorry that the human life is long enough to experience shifts in society, but it is now. It's one of the it's one of the downfalls of modern medicine. You know, if we only lived 30 years, then we wouldn't have to experience almost any change during that time. But as it is, uh, Jacob and many people just like him have now lived long enough 
to be uncomfortable with the changes that they see happening. And what I would suggest, uh, I would say that they would be well served to shift gears a little bit and get in the mindset of going with the flow, recognizing that change is inevitable and that it is much easier to uh, flow with it than to try to resist it, which is absolutely not going to work. <laughs> so that's going to be it for today. If you want to comment on any of this, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog so coming to you from inside the beltway and outside the conventional wisdom of washington dc my name is jay and this has been the best of the left podcast coming to you every third day thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com and it's a cry and shame how we get so trained Stories and forget who it is before.